Very appropriate songs. Very appropriate songs. That's, you know, no longer slaves of fear. That's like the theme of John 17, right? Jesus trying to drive into his disciples. Don't fear. Don't fear. Before we start, we have a pilot in the house. We have a special guest here, my friend Glenn, my new rock climbing partner. I call him that. Really, he's my, my niece's boyfriend, but it sounds way more cool if it's my new climbing partner, right? <laughs> right? So, so Glenn's a pilot, and uh, we were all climbing the other day, and I told Glenn about my upcoming sermon. He said, I, I want to come see, your in, come see you in your element, which is interesting, because last summer, Glenn took me up in his element. He took me for a ride in his family plane, and it was awesome. But by the end, I was nauseous. And I'm hoping that's not going to happen today. <laughs> so, Glenn, on behalf of the Bible Fellowship Assembly, welcome and thank you for being here. John 17, this is huge. You know, in all seriousness, every verse in this chapter is a sermon. It's, it, you know, look at the first verse. Uh, first verse. Father, the hour has come. We know that hour. Through our study here, John, we know that this hour is Jesus' upcoming crucifixion. Father, the hour has come. Come, glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Like, what is that? Verse 2, For you granted him authority over all people, that he might give eternal life to all those you have given him. Right? And all you black coffee-drinking hyper-Calvinists out there thinking, yeah, preach on that wall, that's good, right? I'm going to tiptoe around that tulip. Nobody got, anybody get that joke? Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> um... Verse 3, everybody knows verse 3, right? Now, this is eternal life, that they, um, eternal life, that they know you, the only true God in Jesus Christ, whom you have sent, right? How many hundreds, not thousands of sermons have been preached just on that one verse alone, right? So, John 17, 26 verses, 26 sermons in half an hour. This is going to be good, hang in there. <laughs> I'm talking fast. It's going to be good because the Bible's good. God is awesome. So, I'll just read the, the rest here. Verse 4, I have brought glory to you on the earth by finishing the work you have given me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory I had with you before the world began. Our Heavenly Father, we just ask for your blessings upon this day, Lord Father, with this glorious text. Help us to see, Lord Father, what it meant for Jesus to pray these words, what it meant for the disciples to hear these words, and, Lord Father, what it means for us to read these words here today, 2,000 years later. Lord Father, we cannot comprehend these things and rejoice in them without your spirit, without you. We pray this in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Okay, so how do we understand those first five verses? Interesting, right? Go back a few, few chapters to John 12. Now there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the festival. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. That's interesting, right? They're not saying, you know, sir, we've just come from a wedding that's run out of wine. We want, we, you know, hoping your master can help us out. They're not saying, um, you know, there's ten of us and we're lepers and we want your master to heal us. That's not what they're saying. They're not saying we have a friend who's paralyzed and there's four of us who are carrying him. We're willing to lower him through the roof to bring him to your, your master so he can forgive him and heal him. That's not what they're saying. They're not saying there's 5,000 of us and, and we're hungry and we have a few fish and some bread we're hoping your master can heal us, uh, feed us. They're just saying we want to see him. Right? And we read in 1 Corinthians that Paul says that the Jews seek after sign but the Greeks seek after wisdom. And that's probably what this is, right? Greeks are philosophers, they're wise, they've heard about the teachings of Jesus, they've heard about Jesus, all that he's doing, they want to come see him. 
right? They want like like the queen of, queen of oh came to see Solomon. I forget. Thank you, the queen of Sheba who came to see Solomon, right? Hit him with hard questions. That's what these Greeks are coming to do with Jesus. They want to hit him with hard questions. But look at Jesus' response. Right? So Jesus, these Greek men want to see you. Jesus says, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. What does he mean? Right? That, makes no sense of, that answer makes no sense at all. Think big. Right? Think, think the Bible. Think covenant. That's a good word. That's awesome word number one. Okay, write that down. You'll need that for the exam at the end. I'm serious. Covenant, awesome word number one. Okay, we'll go to another verse here. Matthew 5, Jesus says, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have uh, not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. What does that mean? What is Jesus saying? Again, think big. Think covenant. Think covenant with Abraham. Think covenant with uh, Israel. Covenant with Abraham. The angel of the Lord called to Abraham from heaven a second time and said, I swear by myself, declares the Lord, I will surely bless you and make your descendants as numerous as the stars in the sky and as the sand of the sea, and through your offspring all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed me. Covenant with Israel, Mount Sinai. Now, if you obey me fully and keep my covenant, then out of all the nations you will, you will be treasure, uh, treasure possessions. Although the whole earth is mine, you will be a kingdom of priests, and a holy nation. Okay, so let's put, put this together. We're thinking of the, these Greek men who come to see Jesus. We're thinking of the, the covenants. Who was the law originally given to? Israel, right? Mount Sinai. Here we have it here. The glory of the Lord. The tabernacle, right? Later to become the temple. Awesome word number two. Remember that temple. God gives the Israelites the law. Why? Because they've just come out of Egypt, Right? first part of the book of Exodus is God taking Israelites out of Egypt. The rest of the book of Israel is God taking Egypt out of Israel. You know what I mean? Right? They just come out of a sinful... Uh, uh, this generation has just come out of this huge, powerful country. All they've known is uh, idol worship, other gods, immorality, right? uh, idolatry and stuff. God has taken them out. He wants to make them a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. So God gives them his law so that they can, he can get the, the Egypt out of Israel. Also, they're going to the promised land, these pagan nations. These are wicked, horrible nations, light a lot of idolatry, uh, child sacrifice kind of thing, right? The, this nation is going to be going there, fighting against them. These, this nation has to be pure, ready for that. But another important reason is God is making them holy so that they can be a kingdom of priests. Right? A kingdom is a representative between God and man. God wants this nation to be the priest between all the world and God. So they have to reflect God's character. They have to be holy. They have to be just. They have to be merciful and compassionate and forgiving. Right? So then when all these pagan countries and nations around see this country that God is blessing because they're holy and they're growing and multiplying and there's no wickedness, there's no sin, there's no oppression, there's no poverty in this nation. All the other nations are saying, what's this nation got? What do they have? It must be their God. Let's go see this nation. Let's go worship this God, right? And then God can fulfill his covenant to Abraham that all the nations of the world would be blessed. Right? That's the law. 
Israel failed, right? We know that. Generation after generation after generation, Israel fails and fails. They rebel against God. Here's a good example. God says, when the Lord began to speak to Hosea the prophet, the Lord said to him, sorry, go marry a promiscuous woman and have children with her, for like an adulterous wife, this land is guilty of unfaithfulness to the Lord. So this is, it's this wedding, marriage kind of uh, analogy that God is using to describe his relationship with Israel, Israel's relationship with, he, with him. She said, I will go after my lovers who give me food and my water, my wool, my linen, my olive, my drink. She decked, her, uh, she decked herself with rings of jewelry and went after her lovers. But me she forgot, declares the Lord. And then, right, then we have, there's this tax collector named Matthew and this doctor named Luke. And they write this account of this fascinating conversation between a young Jewish girl named Mary and an angel named Gabriel. And she says, the Holy Spirit is going to come upon you and you will conceive a son and give him the name Jesus and he will be called Emmanuel, God with us. Right? And John, in the beginning of his gospel, says, it says of, of this child, Jesus, that gives him the title Word. Right? Greek for reason. And John says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And the Word became flesh, and he tabernacled among us. He dwelt among us. So now we see that, that, that Jesus now is the temple of God. Right? No longer is, is the Spirit of God uh, in, a, in a single building, but now the, the Spirit of God is in a person, the temple of Jesus, and he's going around to the people. And he's going around and he's preaching, calling people to repent for the kingdom of God is at hand, telling them, you know, and then he's preaching and teaching on the kingdom of God with authority and power like nobody's ever taught before. And he starts healing and casting out demons and feeding people. He's showing compassion. He's showing love. He's showing justice. He's showing mercy. What's he doing? He's fulfilling the law. Right? That's what Jesus that's what Jesus meant. He did not come to abolish it. He comes to fulfill the law. And we see that all the people are attracted to him, right? Jews from all over the place, multitudes, thousands. And they start giving God the glory for everything that Jesus is saying and doing. And then this Roman centurion comes to Jesus and says, I need you to heal my servant, but you don't have to come to my house because I know that you can heal him with the word just from where you are. And Jesus is like, this is exciting. Do you see this? See the faith of this person? Do you know what this means? And then, so, that, so now these Greek wise men come, and they say, we want to see Jesus. You see what this is? This is the covenant of Abraham now, starting to be fulfilled. All the people, all the nations of the world coming to God through Jesus. This is exciting. This is big. So that's why Jesus says, now, now that the, the, the covenant of Abraham is starting to be fulfilled, now that the nations all around are coming to me, now I have to be crucified. Why is that? Because if they want to see Jesus, if they want to see God properly, they need to see Jesus, Jesus crucified. Because when, when they see Jesus crucified, Jesus is the ultimate reflection of God that God who so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him shall not perish but have everlasting life. The God who demonstrates his own love for us in this, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. The God who loves, uh, while we were enemies, 
we were reconciled to him through the death of his son, having been reconciled, are saved through his death. Through Jesus' death, he demonstrates that God uh, predestines us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with with his pleasure and will, and in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, in accordance with the riches of God, sorry, God's grace that he lavished on us. Therefore, therefore, God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus Christ every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and in every, that every tongue should acknowledge Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that your Son may glorify you. Beautiful. Awesome. Awesome, God. Amen. Okay, we're getting to the the second part of Jesus' prayer, the high priestly prayer. Now he's praying for his disciples, those who are with him uh, there at the meal. I have revealed you to those whom you gave me out of the world. They were yours, you gave them to me, and they have obeyed your word. Now they know that everything you have given me comes from you, for I have gave them the words you gave me. And they accepted them. They knew with certainty that I came from you and they believed that you sent me. I pray for them. I'm not praying for the world, but for those who you give me, for they are yours. All I have is yours and all your, you have is mine. And glory has come to me through them. I will, rem- I will remain in the world no longer, but they are still in the world and I am coming to you. Here's Jesus. Here's the intercessory prayer. He's praying for them. Holy Father, protect them. Protect them by the power of your name, the name you gave me, gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. While I was with them, I protected them and kept them safe by the name you gave me. None of them has been lost except the one doomed to destruction so that the scripture might be fulfilled. I am coming to you now, but I say these things that while I am still in the world, that they may have the full measure of my joy with them. I've given them the word, and the world has hated them. For they are, not, they are not of this world any more than I am of this world. My prayer is not that you take them out of the world, but that you protect them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them by the truth. Your word is truth. As you have sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctify myself, that they too may be truly sanctified. So here's what we're going to focus on in this section. Jesus' prayer. Protect them. Protect them by the power of your name. Protect them from the evil one. Sanctify them by their truth. What does this mean? Right? Who, who, who's this evil one? Who's, who's this power? This is what we're getting into. Well, we know it's the devil. Here's just a few verses just to just help, help us lead up to what we're going to be talking about. For our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against powers, and against the dark uh, world, uh, sorry, powers of this dark world, and against spiritual forces in the heavenly realms. Be alert of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion for someone to, to devour. And Satan himself masquerades as an angel of light. So what does this look like? What does, what does it look like for the, for the devil to be a roaring lion on the earth and an angel of light? Well, to understand this, we have to get into the book of Revelation, right? Book of Revelation. Love the book of Revelation, right? Apocalyptic literature. Okay, we have to, that, that's, that's the genre. You have to read the, the book of Revelation as end-time literature, full of symbols, full of metaphors, okay? 
when John wrote this, the, the, the churches, seven churches he was writing to, would have understood this. Apocalyptic literature was popular at the time. They would have understood how to read it. Okay? They would have known, and everything in there would apply to them. Okay? They would have understood everything in there. So, okay, just a little bit of homework here. So in apocalyptic literature, it's symbolic visions revealing heavenly perspectives. There's over 500 Old Testament allusions. Uh, there's numbers are highly symbolic. Three, the number of God, right? Trinity. But also, when you put things together in threes, it means ultimate absolute, right? Isaiah 6, Revelation 4, God is holy, 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 meaning God is ultimately, absolutely holy, right? Then in number six, the number of man, inferior, limited, 666, right? Ultimately, inferior, absolutely limited. Got that? This is good. Seven, perfection, completion, right? Look, in Revelation 5, Jesus, the Lamb of God, has seven eyes, right? Do we take that literally? Did John really see this Lamb with seven eyes? No. What John is saying that Jesus has per- perfect and complete vision, right? Uh, uh, he can view the world. He sees everything. and sees into the hearts of absolutely, pers- absolutely every person. He knows what's going on. The seven churches. We take that literally because John wrote to the seven churches. We have the names, but also take that symbolically, right? He wrote to the complete church, right? That's why we have the literature here today. Number 10, ultimate, many. <clears throat> Same thing, put it three, 10 times 10 times 10, 10, 1,000. Jesus' kingdom reign here on earth now, right? The thousand-year reign of, of Jesus. We know it's more than a thousand years because it's still going on now in 2017. Symbolic, highly symbolic. Twelve God's covenant people. The twelve tribes of Israel, the old, uh, the old, uh, the old covenant people, new covenant people, the twelve apostles, uh, symbolism. Twelve times twelve thousand, 144,000, symbolic of the church. We'll see Tons of symbols for the church in the book of Revelation. The lampstand, the temple, Israel, Judah, my two witnesses, the olive tree, women, and her children, the holy city, New Jerusalem, bride of Christ. All symbols for the church in the book of Revelation. Heads, power, horns, kings, ruler, crown, authority, sea, the world of chaos and darkness, and water, the people of the sea. You guys okay? Got this? All right? Here we go. I'm gonna be, I got lots of slides here. I'm going to be reading a lot. I got a couple sources, and I want to read them just so I don't mess them up because this is big stuff, and I want you to know that I'm not making this up either. So, this is okay. The enormous dragon, the first enemy in the book of Revelation. Look at him, he's awesome. And why do I call him awesome? Like, this is the enemy, right? Why do I call, call him awesome? Well, look how it looks, he's described. The authority, uh, the, then another sign appeared in heaven an enormous red dragon. Look, seven heads, ten horns, seven crowns on his head. Right, complete authority, right, power, right. He's got a kingdom, a powerful, powerful kingdom. The great dragon, the, the ancient serpent called the devil, Satan, who leads the whole world astray. But why is he awesome? Think of Pharaoh. God raised up Pharaoh to a very high position, a very powerful, very powerful nation. But he rebelled against God. But God still used him for His glory. God used him to get his people out of slavery. And he used him, ultim- and he used him for his own destruction. Right? Pharaoh let, let the Israelites go, 
But then Pharaoh hardened his heart more and he pursued God's people. Where did he pursue them to? Into the Red Sea. Then once all of God's people were out of the Red Sea, God closed up the Red Sea and destroyed the enemy. Think of Satan. Same thing. Satan's in the Red Sea. The church, God, people of God are coming through the Red Sea right now. And when all of God's covenant people are out of the Red Sea, God's going to be closing in the Red Sea on the, dragon, on the enemy. It's awesome because when you see the dragon, think God is in control. Think Revelation 4, God on the throne. Think Jesus, all authority has been given to me in heaven on, on earth. That's awesome. So when the dragon saw that he had been hurled down to earth, he pursued the woman. There's a church who had been given birth to a male child. Jesus, then from his mouth, the serpent spewed water uh, like a river to overtake the woman. There's Satan trying everything. All, everything he's got to try to pursue the woman, to sweep her away with the torment. Then the dragon was enraged with the church and went off and waged war against the rest of her offspring, those who keep God's covenant and hold fast to the testimony of Jesus. Now we come to the beast from the sea. Remember, the sea means the world of chaos and evil and wickedness. So that's where the, this beast is coming from. This is the roaring lion, the, the, devil, the devil, the roaring lion. So what's Revelation 13 say about the beast? The dragon stood on the shore of the sea, and I saw the beast coming out of the sea. It had ten horns, seven heads, with, with ten crowns on his head, power, uh, authority on each head, blaspheming names. The beast I saw resemble, resembled the leopard, but had feet like uh, those of a bear and the mouth like uh, a lion. The dragon gave the beast his power and his throne and great authority. The beast was given a mouth to utter proud words and blasphemes and to exercise its authority for 42 months. It opened its mouth to blaspheme God and to slander his name and to his dwelling place and those who dwell in heaven. It was given power to wage war against God's holy people and to conquer them. What's that? that that's, that's intense. So this is from a commentary by Dennis Johnson, commentary in the book Revelation called The Triumph of the Lamb. Daniel's vision on the Ancient of Days in Daniel 7 began with four great beasts coming up from the sea, symbolizing four successive Gentile kingdoms that would wield power over the people of God. The fourth beast, Rome, was not compared with any of the other predatory animals in nature, for it uh, was to be far worse than its predecessors, predecessors in destructive power. In one sense, the beast in John's vision is Daniel's fourth beast from the fact that it both spoke arrogant boasts and blasphemes and waged war against the saints. Rome was the expression of the beast that would threaten the churches of Asia Minor throughout the Mediterranean world in the decades and generations after John received his vision. In another sense, the monster, the beast that John now sees is bigger than Rome as the merging of imagery of all four Daniel's beasts. The beast was given authority to act for 42 months, symbolizing the whole span of time from Christ's resurrection and, until and including the outbreak of intense evil just before its second coming. During the, period, during the period, the church will be persecuted and protected, witnessing invincibly, yet trampled underfoot and conquered, but not destroyed. Therefore, the beast and its uh, persecuting power would outlast the fall of Rome in the 5th century. It continues uh, to find various expressions, some more overt and potent than others, down to our day. You guys okay? Rome, when John wrote the letter, Rome was the beast, right? 
power, authority, persecuting the church. But we know it didn't end there. We see this. When we pray for the persecuted church like we did today, we're praying for their protection against the beast. And we see that, that the beast is conquering them. He's destroying them. Or he's conquering them. He's killing them physically. But he can't destroy them. Okay? Tyrannical kingdoms around the world. Beast number one. Enemy number one. The beast from the land. The angel of light. Look at this guy. He's kind of cute, though. It's it's something you'd find in, in Wade and Judy's petting zoo, right? With all the cats and dogs and llamas and giraffes that they have at their house, right? Let's see what Revelation says. Then I saw a second beast coming out from the earth. So if the water is bad, the earth is good, right? This seems good. It had two horns like a lamb. Jesus is the good shepherd. We are his sheep. He's one of us, right? It would appear that this beast is one of us. This is good. But look, it spoke like a dragon. It deceived the inhabitants of the earth. Later, this beast is called the false prophet, right? So much of the the New Testament letters are written to warn the church about these false prophets that are going to come in and try to destroy the earth. These these are the wolves uh, wolves in sheep clothing. And it also forced all people, great and small, rich and poor, free and slave, to receive the mark on the right hand and on their forehead so that they could not buy or sell unless they had the mark, which is the name of the beast, the uh, the number of the name, and this number of the man 666. So later this beast will be called the false prophet. This is fitting for the contradiction between appearance and reality reflected in the contents of its speech it is, it is its distinguishing character. Whereas the power of the first beast in its boastful pride it is, it is uh, overt and coercive, the influence of the second is covert and deceiving. It is a counterpart of John the Baptist, simulating but not sharing the spiritual power of Elijah using its influence to promote worship of the beast from the sea, rather than calling the people to call the true God, uh, uh, call, sorry, to call the true God as Elijah did. The beast deludes the world's people into receiving the beast's mark of ownership to destroy those and to destroy those who do not receive it or cannot receive it. So, what's this mark? Right, that's the big question. What's this mark of the beast? So, here, here's a few. Um, uh, definitions of what mark is. It's a visible impression or a trace, something as a line, cut, dent, stain, or bruise. Right? A small mark in the arm, right? And that's what this symbol is in the book of Revelation. Remember, symbol, that's what this symbol is. Number two, an affixed or impressed device. Device, remember, John's readers would have understood what this was. So this whole idea of a computer chip, I don't know, that would not have helped John's readers at the time during the persecution, right? So, just to throw that out there, symbol inscription, serving to give information, identify, indicate origin or ownership, attest to character, and three, a, dis- a distinctive trait or character. Put it all together, what is the mark? It's a visible trait or character that serves to give information, identify, and indicate or- uh, origin or ownership. Make sense? Let me try to help you out here. The mark of beast is the anti-Shema. Shema, good word. Third awesome word. You guys remember the first two? Covenant, temple, Shema. Remember these three. So what's the anti-Shema? Okay, first we have to remember, we have to find, ask, what's the Shema? Well, the Hebrew word Shema means, its meaning is to hear, 
Listen, pay attention, respond, obey. It's interesting. There's no two separate words for hear and obey. They're the same. When God says Shema, He wants you to listen. He wants you to respond. He wants you to obey. Okay? There's no two separate words. So what is the Shema? It's a prayer. Right? Shema Israel Adonai Aleheinu Adonai Echad. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And to go into more detail, it's from Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Okay, hear, hear that. Here's the response. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. These commandments that I give to you today are to be on your hearts. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. When's that? All the time. All the time. Always be thinking and meditating on the law of God, the commandments of God. Tie them as symbols on your right hand, on your hands, and bind them on your foreheads. Phylacteries, right? We've all seen this. We know what these are. You can see on, on his forehead, the little box, and on his hand, he's got one on his hand too. And in there are scriptures. Sorry, the Shema. Those are some of the scriptures there. You see that they tie in there. Ancient Israel were to tie the law of God on their forehead and hands in order to signify, it was a symbol, that their thoughts, the mark on the forehead, and their actions, the mark on the hand, were in submission to the word of the Lord. You guys all right? You got this? This is good. Oh, this is good stuff. Okay, so what's the anti-Shema? The anti-Shema. Do not hear, uh, do not hear o Israel, the Lord is not our God. The Lord is not one. Do not love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Do not, do, uh, right? Do, um, the command, these commands that I give you today are not to be on your hearts. Do not impress them on your children. Do not talk about them all the time. Do not tie them as symbols on your hands uh, and, and on your forehead. Make sense? Okay, now this, this is good. So put, this, putting all this into context, think, think of the disciples, think of the early church, think about Rome. Uh, our brother talked about Rome this morning as, as the imperial enemy of the Jews. The cult of Roman emperors, living and dead, became the state religion. There's beast number one. Throughout the empire, though it originated as a simple act of thankfulness for peace and stability uh, brought by Rome, the Pax Romana, temples were erected to honor, uh, for the honor of Julius Caesar soon after his death and to Augusta in his lifetime at Pergamum. This explains the reference to Satan's throne in Revelation 2. In this city, as elsewhere, the cult developed because local people wanted, wanted it in order to flatter the establishment uh, but out of genuine gratitude for the benefits brought by Rome. And it was not felt to be a substitute for existing religions. Nevertheless, as the feelings of gratitude faded, the imperial cult became more and more a test of loyal to its regime. Uh, regime. The consequence, consequence that was refusal to perform the outward rituals was bound to incur penalties. Both Jews and Christians were conscientiously uh, unable to burn incense to any of the hu- to human beings. Jews, after some initial persecution, got exempted uh, from Claudius, but Christians suffered when the church's uh, numbers expanded sufficiently to attract states' hostile attention. Failure to give divine honor to the emperor to swear b- uh, by the genius of Caesar was not the only ground of persecution, but the anti-Christian writer Celus warned the Christians of the perils of the lack of of civic sense and of their disloyalty to the emperor, 
from which they derive many material benefits. That's a lot of reading. Okay, I'm going to have to carry on here. Okay, so here's the, the, the third enemy, right? Babylon, uh, the great, the harlot. When, when I spoke at the winter run, I said to the kids, I said, look, all the women want to be like her, all the men want to be with her. And one girl said, I don't want to be like her, or I don't want to look like her. <laughs> it's a metaphor, honey, hang in there. So. Okay. I'm going to try to speed this up here. Okay, the, the great prostitute. This woman presents fallen human culture in all uh, its apparent glory of its achievements and true repugnance of its ignorance. But the attractiveness of the harlot is both hollow, uh, hollow and short-lived. From the beginning of the vision, Babylon's reign over earth's kings and residents is portrayed as seductive to sexual immorality, but this is a, a widespread prophetic metaphor for spiritual infidelity that is idolatry, right? Remember, think, think of Hosea and Gomer, right? That Jesus, uh, God gave that, uh, that metaphor. We have seen that the beast from the sea portrays Rome from the perspective of physical threat to the church through violence. So also the harlot shows us Rome from the perspective of the spiritual threat of compromise through economic seduction. And I'll, go, I'll skip along here. So here's the conclusion of the evil one, okay? Here, here's... The evil one that Jesus is praying protect them from. The church's ultimate enemy, the dragon, the serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, manifests the massive cunning, think Genesis 3, symbolized in his seven heads by attacking the church from without and from within through physical threat, spiritual deception, and material seduction. That's good. Hang on to that. That's big. These visions in Revelation 12 and 19 symbolize these various avenues of assault as the beast from the sea, the beast from the land, and the harlot. So Jesus' prayer, protect them from the evil one. Jesus says something interesting here. Look in Luke 22. Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift you as wheat. I'd be terrified if I heard that, if Jesus said that to me. But look, okay, here's Jesus' prayer. I have prayed for you. Okay, here's the protection that your faith may not fail. That's it. Where's the army, right? Where's all these angels? Where's the legions? Jesus, faith. There's that three words. I was supposed to test you. What are those three awesome words? Temple and Shema. Okay, here's where Israel failed. They failed to hear. They failed to love. They failed to obey. So God took away the temple. So what do we have different? What do we have different in Jesus? We have a new Shema. Right? Here, I and the Father are one. If God were your Father, here's the response, you would love me. That's huge. See what Jesus is saying here? He's saying, I'm God. Right? The Shema. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your strength. Jesus is saying, now, now, now love me. For God, God and I are one. Right? And that's why the, the, the Jews accuse him of blasphemy. You would love me, for I have come down from God. I have not come on my own. God sent me. Here's the, the obey. If you love me, keep my commandments. Here's the commandment. Here's the mark, right? Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love is no one than this to lay down life for a friend. New Shema, new covenant. I will put my laws in their minds and write them on their hearts. Right? Israel had, had the law on stone tablets. 
God is saying with, with the new church, the new covenant people, I'm going to put my law right in your minds, right in your hearts, right? In your mind. Think of Revelation 2, right? Do not be conformed to this world. Don't be conformed to Babylon. But be transformed, how? By the renewing of your mind. I'm going to write them in your hearts. That's huge. Right? When we, when we, when we do this to somebody, what, what, what do we say? You know, We love you. When God writes his laws in our hearts, what do we, what, what's our response? We love the law of God. Right? We know that, right? As Christians, we love the Bible, man. We love the law of God. We think about it day and night. We meditate on it. We, we, we preach it to our children if they're willing to hear it. And, and, you know, day and night, when we rise, when we sleep, we love the law of God. We love obeying you. God, we, Jesus, we love your commands. We love loving other people. We love being submissive to you. We love humbling ourselves. That's the difference between Israel and the New Covenant Church. God has given us his covenant in our hearts. The covenant in Jesus' blood. And the new temple. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Suddenly a sound like the blowing of violent wind came from heaven, filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed like uh, fire, uh, tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in the midst of you? Protection. Protection from the evil one, right? The Holy Spirit. We're God's temple now. Going out throughout the world, fulfilling God's law. Helping the, the, the covenant of Abraham be fulfilled by going to all the nations. God's Spirit within us. What protection. And then just, oh, I wish I had time to go through all these verses. And then all these verses make sense. Right? They triumphed over him, with the, over, over the devil, with the blood of the Lamb, and the word of their testimony. They did not live their, uh, live their lives as to shrink from death. God says, I myself will be a wall of fire around them. I will be their glory. Not by power and might, but, but my Spirit. There's the 144,000. Look, the look at the mark of God. These are those who did not defile themselves with women, for they were, remained virgins. Right? There's that metaphor of being married. Right? True to Jesus. True. We do not cheat on Jesus. We're, we're, not, uh, we're, uh, we're not unfaithful to Jesus. Faithful all the way. We're vir- you know, right? We keep ourselves pure for Jesus. We follow the Lamb wherever He goes. My sheep listen. They shema to my voice. I know them. They follow me. I give them eternal life, and they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. Right? There's the protection. Though we are persecuted, though we're trampled, the church is trampled, though, though the beast from the sea may, may, may kill us physically, no one will snatch us out of, the Father, out of Jesus' hand. No one will snatch us from the Father's hand. I'll ask the music group to come up, and I'll just uh, get their song ready, and I'll just finish off. We don't, I don't have time to finish this last part of John 17, but that's okay because I'm going to be preaching on evangelism in the Gospel of, John's, in Gospel of John in June. And these verses are very applicable, so they're not lost. I'll just be coming back to them in June. But there's one thing I want to take from this at, at the bottom then. Then the world will know that you sent me, and I have loved them as you have loved me. Father, I want. Jesus, what do you want? Jesus, you gave everything, everything from the day you were born here on earth till the day you died. You, 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 you taught, you healed, you, you, you prayed, and you, you just fed continually, and then you gave your life. You gave, 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 gave. Jesus, just before you die, take something for yourself. What do you want, Jesus? What do you want? 
He wants us. He wants the church. I want those who you've given me to be with me where I am to see my glory. The glory you've given me because you love me before the creation of the world. That's the, right? He wants us. That's, that's what everything is about, right? That's what the law is about. That's what Israel is about. That's what the, the covenants, Jesus coming, his death and resurrection, the entire Bible. Everything exists because he wants us. Brothers and sisters, Shema, listen, obey. The Lord wants us. How are you going to respond? Are you going to commit adultery? Be unfaithful? Or are you going to love the Lord with all your heart, soul, and strength? For he is our protection through his spirit, through his, his new covenant in our mind and in our hearts. Amen. Thank you, Jesus, for praying. Thank you, Jesus, for praying for us, for giving everything for us and more and beyond. And you continue to give through your spirit your covenant, your promises. Lord, Father, help us to be the temple of God, filled with your spirit, going out to the nations, fulfilling this covenant with Abraham that you made with him thousands of years ago, Lord, Father, because this is what you want. In Jesus' name.